Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always, talking to you. Okay, let's get into it. First off, let me just apologize for this podcast a little bit because we had some technical difficulty. Um, I don't know if it was my internet, his internet, the internet between. I have no idea, but it, it glitched out. So there might be one or two question or answers that are kind of cut funny. That's because that's just the way it p- turned out. But other than that, it should be fun. It was a fantastic interview. The second thing to apologize for is I had COVID last week. And so this interview and the Desmond Schumann interview and maybe one other uh, I recorded while I had COVID. So I did not feel well. Um, but I, I tried to power through. So hopefully it doesn't show up too bad. Um, today's topic is How China Loses, at least that's the name of the book by Luke Patey. Uh, a fantastic read. Go check it out. I'll be probably talking about it more on Twitter and LinkedIn. So if you want to follow along there, feel free to. Let's talk about Ryan Recommends. Ryan Recommends segment today is The Martian. I don't know if I recommended that or not, but I'm going to recommend it again. It's a good book. I've thought about the book a lot since I've read it. Um, it's captivating in a lot of ways. And um, it's told you know from first person a lot. And that's very hard to pull off. And so I thought uh, Andy Weir did a, did a fantastic job of that. And the second thing is, when I had COVID, I watched a lot of movies. I went back and watched In the Line of Fire, Clinton Eastwood classic. Go check that out. So those are my round recommends. I will drop those below in the show notes. Sponsor today is Bluehost. Uh, I said, I think last time, COVID brain, that all of my podcasts are hosted on Bluehost. That's not true. None of my podcasts are hosted by Bluehost. My domains, my websites, they're all hosted by Bluehost. Two ninety five a month when you sign up using my promo code. We'll link that below. Go ahead and check that out. And if you do, here's the deal. Send me a screenshot of it, and I will personally read off your website or whatever it is that you're promoting um, via the Bluehost domain you purchase on this podcast. Okay. With that being said, final thing is if you're looking to make money online or in real life, whatever it is, you need to be reading the Five Wide newsletter. I break down how to do it, the tools, the tricks, the techniques, and, you know, it's, it's, it's entertaining. It's entertaining. So be sure to sign up for that. RyanRaySenior.com slash 5WIDE. RyanRaySenior.com slash 5WIDE. I'll link to all of that below. But now we're going to to Luke Patey, who, again, has the book, How China Loses. Here's something of interest. You look at this book, you go, wow, that's a, that's a thick book. But it is. I think roughly 100 pages of footnotes. So it's not like he just threw together some random... I can't do it right on the fly, but it's not like it's just some random hot takes. This is a well-researched book. He traveled all over the world, brings in a lot of experts, uh, interviews, and uh, anyways, be sure to read it. Books link below. Without further ado, here's my interview with Luke Patey. Well, Luke Patey, it is wonderful to get you on today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Okay, well, with the book, the book titled How China Loses, I have to get you on like that's because <laughs> um, all the headlines are is China's going to win. We'll always speak in Mandarin in 15 years. It feels like um, and you you come out of the book at least titled How China Loses. And so um, first, where did the, the title come from? Because it is a provocative title of nothing else. Yeah, I mean, the title came from sort of my um, my reaction to to a lot of, I think, the the hype about China and, and its and its global influence. Um, and and trying to sort of uh, add some balance to the debate that China, you know, that not everything China touches in the world turns to gold. 
um, that that China is facing a lot of challenges in the different regions it's investing in, and and it, a lot of its initiatives are are are, are facing headwinds. Um, so that's where the title came from. Uh, it's not sort of a a prophecy necessarily, um, but it it it's a it's an effort to show that you know China is not unstoppable. Uh, it, it all its ambitions um, will not necessarily be realized, uh, particularly if. Um, other countries, particularly you know the U.S. and and mm -hmm. uh, Western democracies, but also uh, Asian democracies, India, Japan, Korea, and others, um, use their sort of collective weight uh, and and push back, uh, negotiate with the Chinese in the WTO, uh, form defensive cooperations like the Quad uh, to deter China's uh, military expansionism in in Asia, um, and 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 that there is a possibility that. Uh, that China's, you know, can can be can be slowed down. Uh, not that its developmental growth should be stopped for any reason. Not that China should be contained in any way, mm -hmm. but um, that China can be deterred uh, and that uh, a, a greater defense can be built up uh, among uh, uh, countries around the world. Yeah, in, in your conclusion, one of the things that you start out by saying is that the world cannot afford for China to lose. And for me, uh, we're going to get into just kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly about China, but. But I think we had on R. R. Reno back um, a few episodes ago, and he talks about this kind of coming out of the World War II mindset and how we're kind of always looking for Nazi Germany everywhere across the world, and we're not really there anymore. And I think that's important to think about with you about China is that um, you know China losing, if you will, depending on what you mean by that term. But broadly, if they were to collapse as a society, that'd be devastating for the global economy. That'd be devastating for Americans, Australians, all the places we're talking about today. Um, so when we say win or lose, um, we can define those terms in a second. But broadly speaking, a collapse is not would not be good for anyone. No, and I and I don't think China is necessarily headed in that direction. I mean, you know, China is here to stay. I mean, China is a superpower. It's definitely an economic superpower already. Um, you know, it's a military power. It's it has greater cultural influence than it did before. Um, so, you know, China is going to be sticking around uh, for some time as as a as a significant power in the world. Um, and you, you know, you hit the the nail on the head. I, I mean, if China has uh, does face an economic crisis, if it does face a political crisis in the near future, we're all in trouble. Uh, we need China. Um, you know, China's population, 1.3 billion, uh, its economy is, is you know, edging towards 20% of the global economy. So China is necessary to overcome uh, global challenges like, like the current, you know, COVID pandemic, uh, of course, addressing climate change. So China losing or, you know, China uh, failing uh, to, to reach modernization, um, China somehow coming into instability would be, would be a bad deal for for most of us, um, you know, it, if relations with the U.S. and China, for example, uh, continue to be on a negative level, if they degenerate, uh, you know, it's it, we're all in trouble, regardless of of where we are. Uh, the same can be said with you know China and India. These two Asian giants need to get along as well um, for us to take on on these global challenges. So yeah, China's importance is 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 I think. Uh, uh, going to be a, a permanent fixture in international relations for quite some time to come. Yeah, real quick, let me just push back slightly on the military angle. Um, I, I, you, you do see that more because of what they're doing. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a military guru, so when I hear some of the military people, the experts talk, 
and some of the weapons that they sold internationally. I'm not entirely convinced that their military is that capable. Um, it, so another thing is I'm not I'm not entirely convinced that China taking military action like invading Taiwan is, poss- is possible. Uh, okay, it's possible. I'm not sure they would do it. Um, do you believe in the military might thing, or is that a little bit overhyped? Or what, what's kind of your read on that? Because they have the numbers, but it, I don't know. To me, it seems it's, it's more propaganda than actual substance. You know, it, it's not something I go into great depth in the book, but, you know, China's military has, you know, modernized, you know, quite significantly compared to where it used to be. Um, it's, it's, it's reach in Asia, for example, has, has expanded. Uh, I think its ability to, to defend itself and to deter others from any invasion is, is much stronger than it used to be. Um, it's, you know, it, it now has a military base in Djibouti, um, after years of saying it would never have these these foreign outposts. And of course, everyone's in Djibouti, the US, Japan, different EU yeah. countries. But that gives China sort of this 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 more global reach. And we're seeing we're seeing them put it to use uh, in, in joint operations with, with the Russians uh, in, in in even as far as the Baltic Sea. So, you know, I, I agree that you know China's military is still in a modernization period. Um, but it's definitely becoming, uh, its presence is definitely being felt uh, more, particularly in Asia uh, and, and more around the world as well. Okay. I want to get into some more specific stuff here in a second, but I do have a question that that I think about a lot. And you know, when the China economic numbers come out or, or whatever, you always have the person, sometimes me, on Twitter going, China lies about all its numbers. You can't believe it. Um, and there is something to the fact that um, we have to remember that China puts out an ungodly amount of propaganda. Um, some of the things they say is true. How do you cut through trying to decipher what's true or false? And I'll give you one example to me that I thought China was being honest about that some people didn't take them seriously. Um, a few months ago, they released their demographic numbers and it was like be- well below. It was dangerously low replacement level. And some people are like, oh, they're lying about that. I'm like, I don't think they're lying about that in this context because if you actually think about the implications, you know, they're catastrophic, you know, 40, 60 years down the road, it's, it's a problem. And then within a month or so, they had the three child policy. So to me, that kind of made sense. Like they were, they were telling the truth about this and this, but there's plenty of times I'm like, okay, is this true? Is this propaganda? So for our listeners, how does an expert like yourself try to cut through the propaganda and understand what is true and what is not? I mean, you got to You got to go to the ground. You got to do. You got to, you know, cross-check sources. And I mean, at least in in my own focus on on China's international affairs, um, you know, what you say definitely holds true, right? Uh, if you think about their big sort of infrastructure, trade, technology plan, the Belt and Road Initiative, it's often hyped um, as sort of a one trillion dollar uh, plan, uh, and and that you know this money will be rolled out uh, over the next several decades. Um, but you know, if you go down to the ground level and you, you start counting projects as, as researchers have been doing and, and trying to sort of ascertain how much is actually being spent, you know, it, it's, it's been several hundred billion dollars, um, by most estimates, that's a significant amount, but it's not something that is, is sort of overwhelming, um, the international landscape, uh, even for example, in Southeast Asia, which is you know, commonly known as, as China's backyard these days. There, Japan still outspends the Chinese where infrastructure finance is concerned. That's not only historically, but also planned projects moving forward. Japan is, is in the lead. 
Um, if you look at you know Latin America or Africa, uh, the Chinese you know are spending have have spent sort of over 100 billion, around 150 in each each continent. But the World Bank uh, and and other sort of multilateral banks have been matching that. They spend on different things, um, but but they've been sort of at around the same level. So China's not sort of overwhelming everyone else, but it, it it's done an incredible marketing job um, behind the Belt and Road, behind its its own economy as well, uh, right? Um, you know, China's I think it's it's its share of the global economy, as I said, was sort of edging towards twenty percent, mm -hmm. but by twenty fifty it should sort of top out. Uh, around 20, 25 percent. Uh, the U.S. will still be close to 20 percent. India will be rising above 15. So this isn't sort of a, a scenario, you know, like a post-World War II scenario where China's economy is just similar to the U.S., where China's economy is just so large that it, it's sucking in everyone else, right? Um, we have to take sort of, as you say, these projections uh, in, into the future with a grain of salt. Uh, so many things need to happen uh, right reforms need to take place. Uh, it needs to attract foreign investment for it to get to that point as well. So, I mean, yeah, I, I tend to agree that we need to to be cautious when there isn't sort of many checks on those figures within China. So, my first exposure to someone who had a tangible experience with the Belt and Road, if you want, I was a, a friend of mine who were in China. Actually, <laughs> he was talking about um, what China was doing in Colombia and Venezuela. And he was very, very upset with all that they were doing, and and you know, and what he felt like was um, you know, very unfair business practices. Obviously, Venezuela is not known for you know, free market capitalism, so <laughs> you can kind of see corruption there. Um, and, and in the book, you talk about uh, Argentina and kind of what's going on down there. Um, I don't think when you think China, you may think Southeast Asia, you might think Africa. Um, Eric Olander with the China Africa Project, but you don't think South America a lot. Or, um, but but they have a presence down there. And it was kind of um, surprising hearing from him. It was also kind of good to, to see your kind of coverage of the book. Maybe unpack what all is going on down there. And then um, um, one final thing I'll mention is for, for the listeners to go check out is um, you can go read God, earlier this year, six, a few months ago, there were some conversations between China and Brazil over vaccines and trade and stuff. And so their, their teeth are probably more sunk in to South America than maybe most people who don't follow this realize. Yeah, I mean, China has expanded their their presence their presence in South America for the last sort of two decades. Very similar to Africa in many respects. Um, and and what when I started the book, you know, I came from an Africa studies background and was looking at at Sudan and South Sudan, but then wanted to look more at Latin America and went to Argentina. And that you know there are a lot of a lot of you know uh, parallels between Latin America and Africa where China's engagement is concerned. Um, Latin America primarily serves as sort of a source for for raw materials for China's economy. So, you know, from from oil from Venezuela or from from Brazil and, and soybeans from Argentina. You know, the, the, these are sort of the, the fuels that um, are necessary for China's domestic growth, uh, for its own agricultural industry, um, for its energy sector. And, and, you know, the vast majority of, of China's exports from from Latin America, or at least the majority, you know, come come from natural resources, our natural resources. Um, and that's, you know, one similarity to, to Africa, that despite, you know, all the activities China has in Africa and Latin America, it's still mostly buying, uh, you know, raw materials from, from both continents. The other, I think, you know, striking similarity between the two and is China's, you know, activities in construction and infrastructure and energy uh, 
uh, on the on the continent in Latin America. I think they've provided around 140 billion dollars in, in in finance um, since the early 2000s. Much of that in the sort of transport and energy infrastructure, railroads, hydropower dams, nuclear power plants. So they they've they've expanded their presence uh, through through finance as well. And you know we we've seen since. Uh, I think around 2000, just 2019, this really sharply went down, right? Belt and Road Finance, uh, by and large, over the last couple of years has, has fallen, even before the, the COVID pandemic uh, took hold. And even in 2020, there was zero uh, finance, you know, official finance from, from China's policy banks um, uh, it, it offered to Latin America. And, and, you know, this might be because they're investing more, right? They're making some more foreign investments. They might be providing finance directly to, to Chinese state-owned ent enterprises, but there's definitely a drop in that engagement. Um, so the other, I think, interesting thing about Latin America that that seldom gets coverage uh, with China is that China really, you know, as I mentioned, is really only buying the natural resources. Only three percent of Latin America's uh, exports to China are manufactured goods. So there's also this competitiveness, in a sense, between Latin America and China in, in terms of low-cost manufacturing. That's a lot of it's still being taking place in in China and and Latin American, you know, countries like Mexico or or Brazil or Colombia that were, you know, in terms of servicing the American market in particular with with uh, clothing and apparel and foot and footwear. They China has been their major competitor uh, when it when it comes to that. If you think from sort of the 1980s and 90s on. Uh, and and this you know connects to 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 job job growth and whatnot across the Latin American continent. So there are some some trouble spots uh, in the Latin America China um, relationship, uh, including you know on on social and environmental issues uh, on how these companies are investing. But yeah, it's it's along with Africa and uh, Latin America is really uh, one of the main regions in the world where China's presence has grown quite significantly. Yeah, that was his big complaint was that they were taking these raw materials, exporting them to China, and then China was refining them and selling them back at a you know a relatively nice markup to the people of Colombia or Venezuela or to wherever. And it's like, well, hold on, wait, we um we, we lost that. You you took it, then you sold it back to us. And and this partly one of the things I've tried to emphasize to, to him and to our international listeners is one of the ways to solve this problem is to do what the US does, which is to allow landowners to own the minerals which would have fixed some of this problem and you know every country in the world to my knowledge other than the u.s the state owns the minerals which means that you can strike these deals with china and it's very very much uh, one-sided um that's a conversation for the day but it, it, you know when you look at these countries um like a venezuela like a colombia um you know and, and i have some dealings in west africa you know they are they are struggling to climb up the economic ladder they are fighting tooth and nail there's all kinds of internal problems uh, and then you bring the aid in and the aid historically speaking whether it's from the us whether it's from the europeans or whether it's from the chinese it's done a poor job of actually accomplishing what it's supposed to accomplish and so part of the question that i always struggle with is you talk about the, the, the Belt and Road and you know, China's expansion and, and all this stuff. It's like, okay, I think China's doing some things um, right. We'll talk about that in a second. But the other, the other thing is there's a lot of frustration because these are huge problems that you're trying to tackle and throwing money at it, um, exporting your labor to other countries, in, in some cases what China seems to be doing, 
um, isn't necessarily the most beneficial way. And I'm not entirely sure at the time in history that China entered the game, it will work out well for them because um, a lot of these countries have been you know, raped and pillaged, if you will, for so long that they're kind of at the end of the rope dealing with stuff like this. What's your read on you know, how long these um, bad deals, if you will, can go on? Not, not just with China, just in, in general. Yeah, I, I mean, it, a lot of China's sort of uh, reputation is on the line. I think with the with, in the long term with a lot of these infrastructure deals, right? Uh, if they if if China in the next sort of five, ten, fifteen years starts to to see a lot of white elephants materialize uh, in in developing countries in Latin America and Africa and developing Asia, that's going to really take a a major hit against the Belt and Road's reputation. Um, we've already seen, you know. A, a more cautious approach to the Belt and Road um, because of the fear of becoming sort of over indebted, not necessarily to China, but countries in, in general are, are worried about uh, high debt levels. So, I, I mean, it's it, a lot is going to be, I think, decided in, in the next, you know, uh, five to 15 years. Uh, but if these projects do succeed in, in sort of building development growth, um, that will be a boon for China. Uh, I mean, I, I I have my doubts, um, you know, firstly, because, uh, you know, something around 80, 90 percent of the projects in the Belt and Road um, tend to be constructed and often operated by Chinese companies. And this from the get go, right, it crowds out local industry um, and doesn't give them an opportunity to grow. And you see some of the deals that have been renegotiated, uh, for instance, in Argentina, in Malaysia, uh, the, the, the political leadership has made sure that local private sector gets more involved. Um, but still, China is usually dominating those deals. Uh, secondly, you know, infrastructure alone is not you know, going to produce development. Uh, just if you just because you build a road or a hydropower dam, that doesn't mean that there's businesses to use that infrastructure. Um, they also need to be built up uh, in, in many countries. And and China's own experience you know, with infrastructure is not necessarily, you know, the way to go for others. And and Chinese economists have also, you know, uh, berated the, the Chinese political leadership on selling sort of the wrong model of, of China's economic growth, of not sort of underlining the influence of, of the private sector, uh, of entrepreneurs, of foreign investment in China's own development growth. It's It wasn't just about building a lot of infrastructure. It was also about um, those other factors. Uh, and, and thirdly, you know, China has 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 basically uh, th there's this hope, at least in many developing countries, including in Africa and Latin America, that there will be this massive offshoring of jobs from China as costs rise in the Chinese economy and, and sort of low value manufacturing becomes too expensive for Chinese and other foreign companies that they will sort of offshore these jobs elsewhere in the world. That's happening to a certain degree, but most of those jobs are, are going to Southeast Asia and South Asia, close by um, to, to the Chinese mainland, close to the Chinese market. Um, not a lot is, is flowing into Africa and Latin America. There, there's not this promise of, this promise really isn't being kept uh, that, that different economists said would, would sort of take place, that there'd be this huge migration of, of jobs for, for Africans and, and others in, in the developing world. So, I mean, yeah, I think there's going to be winners and losers in, in ultimately um, some countries that have sort of a, a very sort of deliberate strategy, um, like Ethiopia, for example, may, you know, may have some successes. Um, 
but that's not you know that still leaves you know more than another 50 or more african countries left um to to that that aren't going to get that same level of support um so it, it's yeah it's not going to be sort of development for everyone yeah and i wonder how much um you know in in and I always I try to compare stuff to the to the fifties and sixties just because it's a relatively near time frame. But we all okay, I wasn't alive then, but we all know someone who was alive then, um, and we we can understand the differences. And so um, it, expansion in the fifties and sixties in you know whether it's Africa or Central America, it was very much the narrative was very much controlled, right? So it was very much top down through the local newspaper, radio, the government officials, whatever that whatever it was was very limited, very much top down. Now you can get on the internet and you can read what Xi Jinping is saying from Kenya, Ethiopia, Venezuela, whatever. And you can read what they're saying. You can read what your government, your government saying. You can find a dissenting voice. And so I, I do think that China, um, I, part of the problem they're going to have to face is, is that if you talk to people, they're frustrated with some of their quality. And some of, the, and some of these projects aren't going through. That, that, that the propaganda, while it's there, you can also find a lot more people critiquing China's policies. Um, whereas in the 50s and 60s, it was it was different. You just couldn't communicate with the world. So I do think that they're going to face a, a different world this way, like we all are, where the propaganda, while it's there, is going to be challenged. And once you get outside of the the, the, the great firewall, if you will, you know, China can't control the narrative. And we've seen them try to do that with some countries, trying to say, hey, we've got to control the narrative. But it, it doesn't seem to be effective. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. And I mean, the 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 most, I think, uh, uh, strongest case for that is, is Sri Lanka. Um, and this sort of debt trap diplomacy uh, debate that ha was brought up from its experience with China. And, and I'm not a pro proponent of, of the debt trap theory. I mean, I don't think the intention is necessarily there on the Chinese side to sort of over in debt uh, smaller countries in order to capture strategic assets when these countries can't pay back. But nonetheless, you know, uh, this happened in Sri Lanka um, in, in one way or another that, you know, the Sri Lankan government needed to to sell off equity in this port, and and the Chinese company bought it, and and then that handed basically the Americans and others who, who want to sort of paint the BRI in a, in a negative light, uh, you know, a, a big big nice low low hanging fruit to, to bash this this initiative, uh, and and that sort of had a domino effect, it, you know, um, when the Malaysians renegotiated some of their deals a few years after that, uh, they they pointed to the Sri Lankan cases. As a, as a path they didn't want to follow. Uh, and, and that, you know, that has been seen in other places too. Um, you know, Myanmar, Pakistan, countries that are still taking Chinese finance, of course, but have been sort of downsizing uh, their, their ambitions uh, because of the, this fear of becoming over in, indebted. So yeah, it, it, the Belt and Road, uh, with all its promises, with all its propaganda, uh, also opens up for a lot of criticism and, and China can't control uh, all these international debates um, at the same time that so it's going to have to show development results as well uh, and 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 that you know we'll see down the road so, so you mentioned the debt trap policy one of the things that I've, I've thought about um, is will there be a point where enough to stick Africa maybe because uh, there's more concentration of nations there enough African nations are like you know what we're just like a payback and come do something about it more or less like the, there's a civil uprising that you know you have the people like, you know, we're not gonna pay back, come do something about it. And then China's kind of stuck with, they either have to go do something, which would cause all kinds of problems, or they've got to do debt relief. Um, and, and could that take a blow to the to the ego, to the prestige? Because 
I, I do, again, I just believe that we're just in a different spot. Do, do you think we could see a situation like that where there's a handful of African nations like, you know what? Uh, we don't like the deal. Um, we feel like you guys have been dishonest with us. You sold us bad COVID vaccines or bad ports or bad whatever. We're just not going to pay you back. Come do something about it. Because I actually think that's where you could see um, at least some of the the shine knocked off of uh, the Chinese foreign policy. Yeah, I, I mean, I right now, you know, countries that are really indebted to China, maybe it's sort of 15, 20 percent of their external debt. Um, China has been fairly, you know, it, it's it's open to negotiating sort of a, a moratorium on paying back debt. Um, mm. So we haven't seen those examples come up yet that countries just sort of abandon ship uh, and or sort of a new government comes in and says, we're not paying this back. Sorry, that was the old government. Mm. Um, and I, I think still at this stage uh, in, in China's favor that, you know, pe people are going to be very cautious saying that because, you know, if you're a developing country, I don't think you want to be in China's orbit completely, um, but you don't want to be sort of so far away from it that you can't sort of, uh, you know, access some of the benefits that might come from that arrangement. So, you know, if you're a typical developing country in Asia, you want to work with the Americans, you want to work with the Indians, you want to work with the Chinese, uh, and you want to keep all those avenues open. Um, you know, we saw this in, you know, um, I think it was Mauritius, uh, where, you know, a, a new government came in, uh, we saw it in, in Malaysia as well. Um, the new government, very critical of China at first, but, you know, downsized some some deals, even canceled some due to corruption, but didn't sort of burn bridges. Um, but that's, you know, goes to my point as well that, you know, we're in a multipolar world. Uh, and, and, and if you're a developing country or emerging economy, you want to play with all the big boys. Uh, and and China is just one of them. They're not they're not going to dominate uh, many of these countries. Well, that's, a, that's a fair point. And to your the other thing to think about is uh, I wrote something last year, right in the height of the pandemic, back in May, talking about the fact that China would roll out, you know, debt, not necessarily a relief and debt moratoriums because like that's what they had to do. And they did. And so they, they do play the debt game um, pretty well from my perspective, at least the PR, like, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to push the loans back. We can't do relief or maybe we do a little bit of relief. And they're always, they're always doing a good, good job on, um, at least the externalities of, of the debt. And so, um, okay, the, the key to that, though, I think, and I, I'm curious your thoughts, because for me, the EU, I think, holds a bigger place in this discussion than maybe the American side wants to give credit to. And if you go back to last year, um, there was an article somewhere that Xi Jinping hadn't talked to Trump but one time, but he talked to, uh, to Merkel like four times because Germany was about to be the president of the EU. And so... Um, the Western media, at least in the U.S., is like, well, you know, China doesn't care what the world thinks, and they're always internalized. And it seems like their actions would contradict that. And the fact that they were working on Germany so hard before they took over the, was it six months or year-long rating of the EU, um, kind of led to that as well. I think the EU really is the, is is kind of the, the focal point here, because if the EU wants to take a strong stance against China, um, China's really in trouble. If the EU wants to work with China and and I'm not taking a side on what they should do, but I'm saying if they just want to kind of placate China, then China's okay. The U.S. alone, I don't think, can really sway what China's going to do too much. Um, I think the Trump administration proved that. What's your read on the EU and how much power they actually have in this in this um, with China? That's a good question. I mean, things are under development, I think, with the EU, uh, and, and they've been sort of in flux um, the last sort of, 
I'd say five to seven years where China's concerned. And, and it came sort of um, at, at different turning points, one of them being sort of in the last, I would say, you know, um, 10 years or so, Chinese foreign investment in the EU has been ramping up. And at first, I think many European countries welcomed that. But then come around, I think, 2016, 17, you know, the numbers were increasing even more. And 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 people here were noticing that these weren't sort of investments into new factories or, or service outlets of Chinese companies around Europe. These were takeovers. These were acquisitions of, of European companies. And that set off alarm bells uh, in Brussels, in Berlin, in Paris. And um, we saw this new... Uh, European strategic outlook come out in March 2019 that basically, you know, painted China as 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 a partner, yes, in trade and climate, but also as a, a strategic competitor and also as a, as a systemic rival. Um, so there, th this is sort of how Europe wants to play this, right? It wants to sort of get as many benefits out of China as it can, but it wants to sort of also keep it at bay. Um, so. And that, that latter part is quite new. So you have this sort of new investment screening passed by, um, by the European Union, but also new national uh, restrictions on foreign investment uh, by different EU countries, including Germany, that have been blocking Chinese investments into uh, tech companies here in Europe um, in the last couple of years. You have new sort of anti-subsidy legislation in the works, um, trying to sort of undermine some of the competitive advantages that Chinese companies have uh, when in, when coming into the EU. Uh, you even have sort of an anti-coercion um, policy under discussion within the EU now to try to sort of deter China from coercing European member states. Um, so you, you have sort of a more critical view that's grown in, in Europe. But still, you know, as you note, um, there's still a lot of, you know, uh, China proponents of, of improving relations with China and, and, and proponents of how it used to be wanting to keep that, that, that time alive. And those mostly are in Germany. Uh, Germany represents, you know, 40, 50 percent of, of, of trade between the EU and China. Um, it doesn't mean that the Germans are dependent uh, on the Chinese economy. Seven percent of their trade is with China. And, you know, the U.S., France, Netherlands are close behind. So Germany has a very diverse trade portfolio. But there are a handful of, of, of German companies, uh, Volkswagen, uh, Daimler, um, the car makers in particular, BASF, this chemical giant, that are have a higher sort of uh, dependence on China. You know, 15, 20 percent of their sales are in the Chinese market. And of course, unlike all the small and, 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 and medium sized enterprises and companies in Germany, uh, the big companies have the ear of the chancellor and they, they can influence foreign policy. Uh, and, and economic policy uh, much more, uh, much greater than, than than sort of the smaller companies can on their own. So you you are seeing this sort of corporate influence and and those interests coming through in in Germany's policy, and that has a way of of, of steering the EU um, uh, away uh, uh, from a more critical approach on China. But yeah, the EU should not be forgotten. I think by the US um, that you know it. There are, you know, critical voices growing towards China, but there are still those sort of uh, um, stronger uh, voices that that just want to continue the business opportunities to keep those things alive with China, and that that don't put sort of much foresight into, you know, where are where are these German companies going to be in 10, 15 years when their Chinese competitors grow? Right? Was it was it worth it? All the gains in the short term were they worth it if you lose your competitiveness in the long run? 
But well, I think Europe is going through this this learning process right now. Yeah, that's what I say. That, that Germany, there were um, reports <clears throat> uh, last year that 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 the um, not necessarily the big companies you name, but kind of that next tier down was going to the leadership. Like, hey, you know, China is they're out competing us, and uh, not in China, but outside. There, in, in what you kind of if you pulled the onion back, you realize that these companies went to China. Um, they had some kind of JV structure or whatever it is. And um, there was some kind of swap of intellectual property, whether it was theft or mutual or whatever. But now the Chinese were exporting that globally um, and they were beating them at their own game. And, and the German companies were, were, were very much complaining. And, and to me, when I read those stories, whether it's a U.S. company or a China company, I don't have a lot of sympathy for them because they knew what they were getting into on the front end. It's the average consumer who hears about it. And is like, oh, well, man, China's China screw them guys over. It's like, well, they knew the risk they were taking. They just thought they were playing. They could play it better than China could, and they got burned. And then, so then you have that pressure coming on the government, and then you have the average consumer who needs the cheap goods from China. Like, well, hold on, I've got mixed loyalties here because I don't want the Chinese, if, if for the perception at least, doing something wrong. But also, I need my cheap goods because that's how I stay um, somewhat, you know, above the poverty line. And so it puts the average citizen in a in a bad spot. So I'm. I'm kind of torn on how to message that, but I'm, I'm quick to criticize the companies because it seems they knew what they were doing. And the average citizen is just kind of a, a victim of the game, if you will. Yeah. I mean, it, it comes a lot to, I think, short-term thinking and, and just sort of the nature of a, of a modern uh, multinational corporation that you got to think at the managerial level or the executive level, right? I want my bonus. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to get, you know, quarter sales up. China is a big part of that growth. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want my government to rock the boat. Um, and and I, I don't have the luxury of, of thinking where we might be in 10 years uh, because, you know, I, I, I want to get my own career on the move right now. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there's nonetheless a growing sense in, in different companies, especially, you know, after we see, you know, the, the telecom industry get burned. And that, you know, that was Ericsson and Nokia, two European companies that have been sort of pushed out of the Chinese market. We saw the railroad. Um, industry get burned. That's companies like Siemens and Alstom, also European companies um, that that didn't sort of capitalize on the railroad industry's development in China as they hoped. We saw it with solar. Um, German companies were were huge, sort of ten years ago. Now the Chinese have sort of you know mopped the deck with them, and you know increasingly we're seeing it in in the other big green industry, wind uh, and and Vestas here in Denmark where I am. And, and Siemens Gamesa, this German-Spanish company that competes uh, with GE in the U.S., three big turbine makers, they're starting to feel more pressure from Chinese companies like Goldwyn and Envision, uh, not only in China, where those Chinese companies already dominate, but now in third, in third markets as well. Um, so, you know, you wonder how many times does this need to happen before European policymakers and, and European executives um, say, okay, uh, we need to have a different plan. You know, uh, we need to get together with the Japanese, with the Americans, with with the Koreans, with the Canadians, and really try to get China to to negotiate some new WTO rules. Even if it might take years on end, it, it, it's going to be worth it down the road. Um, and I think you know we're starting to see some of this thinking materialize. But the question is, can it can it happen quick enough uh, to save some of these industries from from this competitiveness? Okay, so let's talk about. Um, some questions about the book, but not the book per se. Um, the book is again, how China loses. So what was the one 
or two things maybe that maybe you thought going into writing the project, okay, this is what I believe about China and that you changed your mind, maybe you moved a little bit, you wanted to reshape it. What are something, something like that, that through the process of writing this book that you really kind of um, learned or, 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 or recast, or, or want to recast? The one sort of myth I, I wanted to sort of uh, break down was that the U.S. and China are the only two that matter for global affairs. The, the second one was this idea that China is is sort of in in a struggle versus the West alone. Uh, I think you know if you look at uh, China's neighbors, uh, significantly India in particular, China also has troubles with with you know countries that very much consider themselves outside of the West um, and and not part of of, of the West and. You know that this includes other Asian countries as well that might be sort of have alliances with the U.S. Of course, Japan and Korea, um, but China's sort of relationship uh, with with its neighbors uh, is is not sort of hunky dory either. Um, that that we shouldn't talk about sort of this uh, China versus U.S. or China versus the the West because it is more complex. Uh, and there are, I think, partners for the United States, partners for for Europe within Asia um, that, you know, don't want to break off relations with the Chinese, but do want to work with others that want to have sort of a, a trade, you know, an, a, a WTO system that that functions, um, that have clear trading rules and, and a deterrence against, you know, Chinese uh, military expansion in the, in the region. Tell us your favorite story of traveling to, to, to cover this book, because you kind of went a bunch of places, so maybe not, not in the book, but it's something that you you saw, you experienced, um, something that you enjoyed, because um, obviously you put a... I was looking, there's over a 100 pages of index and footnotes and stuff like this. You did a lot of research, so give us... I know that has to be the tough work. Give us some of the fun stuff in writing the book. No, I mean, this is, you know, it's such a, a privilege to, 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 to have sort of the luxury to, to, to write a book and to travel um uh, uh to to do this and and the support to do that um so i mean i i you know i really you know got to see the world by doing this book uh you know traveling from from africa where i'd been working for for years uh and and then going to argentina you know and and getting sort of the effort here was to really get you know in depth you know to do an in-depth study in each of these countries you know uh, and and to to show how that you know uh, uh reflected the sort of the the broader uh, relationship uh, uh, with China in in these regions, uh, and and you know it's it was more sort of seeing the similarities between places, um, sort of some of the civil society resistance that uh, again sort of a, a Chinese uh, infrastructure project that that was both happening in Argentina but also in in East Africa, um, and you know it was it was about also sort of seeing this development of Chinese officials that I met because this was a project that took some years and, and it sort of happened during the sort of the birth of China's wolf warrior di diplomacy, sort of China's assertive foreign policy. So, you know, I went from sort of a, a period where it was very hard to get hold of, of Chinese diplomats and officials and executives in the countries I was, I was in, in Africa to later, you know, them being very out, outgoing, but also outspoken in in their in their discussion with me and, and sort of sort of dictating sort of how they wanted things to function function uh and that all happened sort of in a in the three or four year period that i was really researching this book okay um anything that you left out of the book that you after you after you're kind of compiling it because again you've you've done a, a ton of research so is there anything that you left out you go oh man now in hindsight i wish i would put that in there or maybe a project for a future book 
Yeah, I think the Middle East is 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 mm. needs to come in. Um, you know, it it's a place that I wanted to get to uh, to look at China's uh, presence and influence there, um, and sort of the shift um, from the U.S. being the main uh, um, market for a lot of the the Gulf uh, oil producers, uh, and now it being it being China. Um, I also wanted to go more in depth into the relationship with India, because I think this this relationship, China, India is going to be significant uh, for everyone. And and to, to get to India, where I traveled before for my, my last book would have been sort of, I think, also ideal. And that's probably going to come into my future work as well. Yeah, especially after the border kerfuffles that we've seen over the past year with India. I think that's going to be an interesting story to watch. OK, um, final question for the day. Um, Besides your book on China, what other book would you recommend? Oh, good question. Uh, um, there's so many good books coming out right now. I, I, I think, though, um, something that really sort of uh, inspired me, at least, was was Howard French's book, Every, Everything Under Heaven, Everything Under the Heaven, um, uh, that he wrote some years back that really showed this sort of uh, ambition that China does have, that it does want to have power and influence in Asia and, 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 and more increasingly uh, global globally as well you recommend that one i'll link to that in the show notes and i will recommend the new one by peter martin uh china's civilian army which i think is a fascinating look and um from my perspective when you see kind of china doing some things that it's it's kind of like our u.s foreign policy that's some of the stuff that we've done before it's just repackaged and looks different so i think that's a, a good read okay so folks go pick up a copy of how China Loses. You can get on Amazon. Audiobook is what you have to listen to them. It's all over the place. We will link to that below in the show notes. Luke, thank you so much for your time. And listeners, we'll be back. Let's see this comes out on Thursday. So back next week. Thanks very much, Ryan.